In my house, we have a couple of three-year-olds for whom waiting is very difficult. Five is currently the number they think has the largest value, as in to quote, tomorrow when I'm five and I'm a grandmother. So when we say that you can have a snack in five minutes or you'll be in timeout for five minutes, they immediately yell, no, not five minutes, that's too long. Waiting is difficult for them, but so is the concept of time. When they wail, five minutes, that's just too long. I say, okay, if five minutes doesn't work, what about seven minutes? And they say, yeah, that's better, thanks mom. Waiting is hard no matter our age, our season of life, our perception of time. The anticipation and celebration of the Advent season have made us long for Christmas morning, for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, for exchanging gifts and food and joy with our loved ones. And no year has it been harder to wait than this year. We are so done with this year. We're done with the quarantines and the anxiety and the isolation and the grief. We're done with the frustrations of navigating the world in this completely new and unwelcome way. We're done with fear that each runny nose or the smallest throat tickle brings. We are done with the heartache and the death, the incomprehensible loss of life at this magnitude, the global and individual trauma, done with the worry for our loved ones that has gotten so intense that it robs us of our sleep. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear the pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? Waiting is especially difficult when we are in pain. And we are not a society that typically likes to be in pain. When this past year happened and Halloween was over, we collectively decided to be done dwelling in the sadness of this year and just usher in the Christmas season. Lights and garland, Christmas trees, early holiday shopping. My family even put icicle lights outside our house for the first time. And we got one of those red and light laser displays that we always thought was super cheesy, but hey, it's 2020, bring on the Christmas spirit. I wonder though, if there might be something about the waiting that's important, something significant about not rushing through our grief, but giving it the time and the space that it needs. I took a class this semester where we learned about the intersection of neoliberalism and depression as cultural resistance. Let me just stop right there and say every time this class met, I had Zoom pulled up on one side of my computer and Google pulled up on the other so I could frantically type, what is neoliberalism again into the internet void? And I'm here to say I still don't fully know. But our conversations usually touch on this idea that grief and the stillness, time and attention that grief demands of us is often at odds with a culture that so greatly values productivity. I think this might be why we're not good at waiting or mourning or grief. They just aren't productive things. Of course, if you're Taylor Swift, you can produce two original albums from the pain of this year, but for the rest of us, sadness can be shameful because we don't have anything to show for it. This tension between grief and our cultural orientation towards production and going and achieving and happiness and everything is great attitudes are at their highest during the holiday season. In a time when things are merry and bright and the most wonderful time of the year, there's not a lot of space for stillness or loss or mourning. A few years ago, I had my own experience with the tension of grieving during this joyful season. I was pregnant for the first time and it made Advent come alive like it never had before. 
And this is an experience I think our culture has no trouble affirming or understanding. It was so easy for me to imagine myself like Mary, holding this secret new life and anxiously awaiting its arrival. I bought Christmas ornaments for our parents that would announce their new titles as grandmom and granddad. It was just easy to be filled with the Christmas spirit and to be expectant with joy. But a couple weeks before Christmas, we found out the pregnancy was most likely not going to make it and everything shifted. My expectant waiting became something else. Instead of anticipating joy and fullness and new life, I watched and I waited for emptiness and for the coming of the end. When the end arrived in the early hours of Christmas morning, I couldn't believe the timing of it. I spent the rest of the day navigating large family gatherings, bumping numbly from interaction to interaction, in complete shock that this is what it could look like to celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. Long after that Christmas season had come and gone, my grief remained. I went to see a therapist just to ask her, is it normal to feel this sad for this long? A few months later, I was talking to a loved one and I told them about the pain that I continued to carry, the days it was hard to get dressed or feel happy, and they replied gently but with genuine surprise, really, still? How long, O Lord? When the waiting seems unbearable and the pain can seem as though it never ends, I often hear the words of my favorite affirmation of faith, we are not alone. In the season following my miscarriage, though the grief was a constant companion, so was my community of support, the tangible body of Christ. I felt so held and so carried during that time. I was in pain, but I was not alone. Calls and texts, friends who knew when I needed to laugh and when I just needed to be heard. My husband's shirt slowly became all stained with this curious crescent-shaped mark which we one day realized was mascara from all the times he had held me to his chest while I cried. That time will always stand out to me as a time I was devastated and I was so aware of the presence of God. I was heartbroken and I was filled with God's love for me through the actions, prayers, and presence of our family and friends. I think it's okay for grief to take the time it needs to take. In the class I mentioned earlier, we read The Heart of Grief by Thomas Adig, and the author talks about how unhelpful it can be for grieving families to be encouraged to move on or to let go of a loved one who has passed. I think people gently encouraging the grieving to do this do so with the best of intentions, but I found it particularly isolating when you still feel very much in the throes of grief and those around you have expectations about how long the process should take. In his book, Addict suggests, instead of trying to let go of those we've lost, we instead have the expectation that we will always be in love with them. Only now our relationship will look different. My professor, Dr. Bruce Rogers Vaughn, says it this way, grief is the experience of loving someone under the condition of their absence. In grief, we learn to continue to love those we have lost. And this is not something that, being, that can be accomplished quickly, it's the journey of a lifetime. In the Gospel of John, in the story about the death of Lazarus, we see evidence that Jesus was not in a hurry to rush through his own grief. The text said that Jesus weeps with Mary as they mourn the loss of her brother. And this is so odd to me because Jesus is just verses away from bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus has even told several of his followers on the way that this is his plan to bring Lazarus back to life. And yet Jesus weeps. 
He takes the time to grieve. I think this is significant. I think Jesus is giving us permission here, regardless of a situation's outcome, to take the time for grief it needs to take. Or to quote the immortal words of Daniel Tiger, I think Jesus is saying it's okay to feel sad sometimes. I'm not saying we should strive to feel sadness forever or that eternal grief is some type of goal. But what I am saying is that this grief we carry, regardless of its form, regardless of its counterintuitive presence here with us in this holly jolly season, this grief is important for us to pay attention to, to name and to create space for. And while we navigate this grief, we are not alone. We're never alone. In Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses or with our pain or with our sadness. Instead, we have a Jesus who did not rush through his own grief, nor the grief of Mary or Martha, but was present and listened and wept. We have a God who answers the pain and the suffering of the world with incarnation, with the tangible embodiment of God present here among us. We have a God who answers death and despair with resurrection, with new life, new worlds and possibilities. Communion is our reminder of how God promises to redeem our suffering and of who God is in the midst of our pain. A God present with us while we grieve, who does not cause our sorrow but forces good to come out of it. As seen in the resurrection of Jesus, we are accompanied by a God who does not let death and despair be the final word. We break the bread and we drink the cup and we remember the new world that came into existence, the gates of the kingdom of heaven that were opened with the resurrection of Jesus. Author N.T. Wright speaks of communion as a signpost, a holy moment where we, bear the, where we bear witness to the intersection of heaven and earth, and where we are not freed from our suffering, we are not fully heal, healed, but where the kingdom of heaven breaks through to where we are, and we are accompanied. We are given a vision of a world where suffering gives birth to the reconciliation of all of creation back to the creator, and where we are not alone. As we take these elements together, even as we are part, we uplift that it is as a community that we proclaim these realities to each other. That though the world is not as it should be, it creeps ever closer as the spirit of the living God is more and more fully revealed in us all. How long, O Lord? In the interim, we are seen and we are held. Thanks be to God.